On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the tent cities in this city, the squatters. City council has changed the rules and said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. Why? We'll let one of the city councillors explain that. We're also talking about Afghanistan. And why are we talking about Afghanistan? Things are deteriorating rapidly there. And it leads you to ask a question, I think, which is all the sacrifice, all the deaths, all the injuries, all the money from Canadians, was all of it worth it? If everything is falling apart and going right back to being crappy, was everything worth it? We'll discuss that. And then WP Kinsella, he passed away in 2016, but we talked to him in 2012 in light of the Field of Dreams baseball game, the Yankees and White Sox playing at the Field of Dreams on Thursday. We're playing that interview with WP Kinsella. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, City Council made a decision. They, they've been dealing, the, the city has been dealing with a difficult issue, uh, admittedly a difficult issue, involving homeless encampments, tent cities that are popping up at different places in the city, oftentimes on, most times, on public property. And this is not easy. There are those who say that we should allow this because these are people who need somewhere to be. And there are other people who say, no, you can't just let the city's property become a campsite. Well, the city yesterday and changed tack a little bit, not allowing encampments on city property. And again, for those who are very much in favor of allowing it, this has created some rather enormous anger saying these people have nowhere to go. The other hand, some say they never should have been there in the first place. I want to bring in Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr, who has found himself in the middle of this discussion all the way through. Councillor, thanks for doing this. Well, I have no problem at all. Thank you for uh, touching on the topic. It is important. Why? So so the city had for a time um, allowed on with some conditions these encampments, and now, as I understand it, that is changing and that's not allowed. Why the change? Well, Scott, as a history lesson, you know, the reason why we allowed it, it was part of a settlement. You'll recall last year there was an injunction from Ross McBride, the downtown law firm, representing um, Keeping Six and uh, a, a couple of other health agencies and organizations who challenged our bylaw. They weren't getting anywhere for years. They've said this. I'm not putting words in their mouth with the province because this is really a Ministry of Health issue and they get their paychecks, a lot of them from the Ministry of Health, but they sure tried. And so they instead uh, went after a local bylaw, which is no overnight camping. They got an injunction because we were flat-footed. They said it was an emergency and went to court right away. And then they got an extension on that injunction. And we ended up, uh, rather than go to court, we decided that we could settle with maximum five tenths on city parks, but no more on Ferguson Street and York Street, which was obviously a series of problems uh, occurred there. And that after 14 days, if you weren't of high acuity, we would uh, we would do our best to find in that, those 14 days safer, more humane accommodations, but you'd have to move on. So that's what we settled for, and that's what you've been witnessing, particularly in areas of the inner city, but others throughout the city, um, uh, until our, our motion, of course, Monday night. To repeal the, the that, agree- that deal. That okay, and so the legal... Essentially... The legal deal that you had, it, it clearly it's something that you were allowed, even though it was a legal agreement, you, the city, the council felt they were able to get out of that one to change it. It was absolutely it, signed it, off on by both parties. Absolutely. And we reserved the right in the uh, deal 
uh, that I just talked about that resulted in the 14 days and, and five maximum tents. That deal uh, uh, was signed off by both parties, had a clause that gave us the right to amend or repeal at any time. Absolutely. You know, the th- those who, and as I said this, and look, anyone listening uh, understands how this works. Those who um, feel very strongly that this kind of thing should be allowed would say these people have nowhere else to go. Uh, this is really a not very compassionate move on council's part. This is a cold move to to e- make illegal living somewhere. Wh- what do you say to that? Well, two things. Uh, I think it's a cold move, and I and a large majority of my council's colleagues agree. And they they with a ratified uh, emergency council motion on Monday night that it's not safe or humane to be living rough and sleeping rough outside. It is the least uh, of. Uh, safe or humane options. It really is. I mean, think about it. I mean, there's a whole lot of problems attached to that for those who, who live in that manner, period. It's not hard to argue. And secondly, especially in a city that is better than any other city at housing homeless people. We've been at it for a long time in this city. We were very good working as a corporation, but also with amazing partners in the shelter system, in other areas, and especially in the housing system. During this pandemic, we housed 440 homeless singles or families. During the pandemic, 440. Scott, you've talked on your show before about our housing wait list. It's at around 7,000 or maybe a little less than that now. It could be 5,500. 440 during a pandemic house. On top of that, we always have had, we have, and we will continue to have safer and more humane options in the form of shelters and now hotel spaces. They're there. They've always been there. It's unfortunate that there's a narrative from the folks that want to support this inhumane, unsafe lifestyle, that they keep this refrain that there are no options. We are very good at providing options, and we've statistically shown that. So so there is and there are enough beds within the yes. city for, you believe, all the people who are out there living rough right now, they could theoretically all move into these options, into these places? Definitive, yes. If we didn't have that, I wouldn't have I wouldn't move the motion, Scott, because that would say that would that would then mean there are no options. Despite the narrative from the other side, there always has been. And if there wasn't options, safer, more humane options for our citizens, uh, we wouldn't even have gone this direction. And it's really unfortunate that um, that there's a there's a group of folks that want to focus on, uh, on on something that really isn't a reality. And it's a bit offensive, to be frank with you, because, you know, I'm part of that. I've been part of City Housing Hamilton for a long time. I have a background from my childhood in this being a very, very important and uh, 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 topic of mine and one that I've been very active and engaged in for a very long time. So I'm offended in a way that the narrative is being twisted by our appellants in this case, uh, and including now, quite obviously, with the comments I've heard since some of these former court appellants, who are weighing their options right now under a narrative that just isn't true. We have safer, more humane options, period. And we can prove it statistically. 700 families in the last, uh, since 2020 started, 440 individuals or families housed. I'm not talking about we sent them off to shelter or a hotel room and tried to figure things out. And by the way, we're pretty good at figuring things out if that is the case. And it is sometimes the case. It's a shelter or a hotel room. But it doesn't stop our outreach work. It doesn't stop us from our main goal, which is widely known, and it's unfortunately not something anyone else who wants to support tents wants to focus on. 
but we don't ever stop outreach and we're not going to stop outreach just because we're going back to a bylaw that this and just about every other city has, which is no overnight camping. Um, the other side though, and I think a lot of people would be on both sides, but a lot of people would say, you know, we've heard stories about drugs and violence and fires and used needles and human waste. And I think there was even an explosion at one of these places. Do you believe it's, it, it, do you believe it's possible for these encampments to stand and not have these problems? Oh, absolutely. I do. Unfortunately, the problems are existing and they're multiplying. They're, they're very true and documented. And, and, you know, I'm not going to go through police calls for service or fire calls for service at this point. I know we don't have a lot of time left, but there has been an explosion at three 30 in the morning at, at central park. There has been assaults there. There was gunfire that led to that Walmart truck being stolen. That, that, was well publicized on both ML and the spec and other documented uh, uh, things like that, Scott, that actually reinforce the argument that it is not safe or humane to live rough and sleep in tents. There's, there's a lot of danger, public safety danger with respect to the residents of those encampments and it's documented and, and there's a litany. Trust me there. I, I have, spent a great deal of time since the protocol was put in place and that's the, the 14 days and five tens max at our local parks i have a, a lot of documented uh stories first-hand accounts from residents as well and uh a lot and and uh other information and budgetary information even from the parks perspective you know our parks budget we've had to hire uh just for the cleanup and and that means it's it's messy and messy is can be a health issue and they, they are health issues as a matter of fact in a lot of cases and so we're, we've contracted out we can't keep up with our park staff so we've contracted out over fifteen thousand dollars right now ta- taxpayer investments and i'm not suggesting it's not a good investment because we've got to do all we can to try to keep these healthy and work within the confines of this protocol at the same time so it's been very very challenging on a lot of fronts but but to the point you're making these things are documented. These very unsafe incidents did occur. They're real, and they're not safe, and they're, it's not a humane environment to live in when that stuff's going on. There is uh, well-documented situations now where in some American cities, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, I think Portland, um, there's a few others, where the these tent cities have become an enormous problem for the city to try and resolve because you're trying to be kind and you also though then end up with these explosions of people who are living this way and and you know pe- compassionate people still can say i don't really know that this is ideal H- how confident are you that you guys that the city council that the city that staff that bylaw all, police all the rest can deal with this in a way that doesn't antagonize the other side and lead to more people deciding to do this or supporters where you end up now with some of these big, big problems some of these American cities have? Well, they wouldn't be able to because if we have a bylaw and it would be enforced. So, so yeah, but when you enforce a bylaw, sometimes, as I say, you antagonize people and then you end up with more supporters coming out and and it it fans the flames rather than extinguishing them. But the only other option was to maintain the protocol, and it's unsafe and inhumane. It's the worst possible way for anyone to live. So, so then you have to inf- you have to have a bylaw. I don't know the municipality uh, bylaws in places like like Los Angeles where they have Skid Row and Portland, the whole West Side, now, San Francisco. 
Um, and, and when I say Skid Row, I don't say that uh, uh, negatively. It's what they've labeled it for many, many years in Los Angeles. And it's 50-some-odd square blocks. Um, but I do know locally, and even provincially, there already has been a superior. If we're going to be challenged, it'll be in the superior court. A week or so after we did the settlement in Toronto, a superior court judge told Toronto that they could exercise their rights to enforce that bylaw. And you saw what happened. They were courteous enough to wait a good while through the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, but they they a few weeks ago exercised that right given to them by a, the superior court to defend their local bylaw, and now our local bylaw is back to being what it was before. And so, you know, I, 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 are there going to be protests? I can't predict what what will happen. Uh, certainly, we've made other decisions as a council, particularly this term of council, that have led to that, and that's fine. I, I I'm absolutely I, I can't have or want to live in a society that doesn't provide that option. I didn't think that everyone would be singing kumbaya and agreeing with this emergency council decision in, the, in an emergency. But the reality is you've got to make a decision and then you've got to enforce and stick to stick with it, which is something we've done for decades. I mean, that bylaw has been around forever and we'll go back to doing it the way we did it. And, and by what? the way, that includes a very sensitive approach with the best outreach people, both in staff and in our partners that any city would beg to have. Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr, uh, this is a story I'm sure that we probably will be hearing more of, but uh, that that's what's going on this week, and that's where we are right now. Uh, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. I always like coming on the show. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Read a headline in the National Post today. said this, Taliban could take Kabul in three months, U.S. official says, after a group captures 8th provincial capital. Think about that for a second. Uh, you can understand why this would be a bad thing. This would be a very troubling thing. But yet there's something that to me, as soon as I heard that, and I've been following this story about how the Taliban has been gaining ground and taking places and toppling local governments, something to me is far more disturbing than simply the the, the war, the fighting going on in Afghanistan. And that is that Canada, us, we we had soldiers there for well over a decade and 159 of our soldiers died 2000 more roughly were injured uh depending on who's doing the accounting canada's taxpayers spent between 9 and 19 billion dollars in that country it was for the soldiers primarily i don't want to put us in a level playing field it was an enormous sacrifice for taxpayers to some degree but for the people on the ground it was an enormous sacrifice and yet now you see what's happening there, and I can't help but wonder, was it really worth it? Was it really worth it? I want to bring in Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. He is a University of Waterloo professor. His research and teaching interests, Canadian military history, peacekeeping, Afghanistan. Couldn't be a more perfect person to talk to today. Dr. Hayes, thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Scott. As I lay this out and I read these stories, it, it, it seems hard to me to come to the conclusion somehow that it was worth it. Do you believe that what we did was, or are you questioning that? <laughs> Historians are terrible at, at trying to come up with an easy answer to that. And, and our, our glib answer is it's too early to tell. I mean, right now you're right. The news is really bad coming out of Afghanistan and uh, you know, the, prediction that Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, will fall in 90 days should send a shudder through all of us, uh, especially, as you say, it cost us an enormous commitment, an enormous number of lives and, and a terrible amount of money. 
I was just trying to get a handle on the on the American contribution or however word you want to describe the American intervention in Afghanistan and it's it's beyond shocking, you know, almost a trillion dollars that the Americans spent in Afghanistan between 2001 and 2019. And, uh, you know, uh, thousands of, of U.S. soldiers, let alone the civilian casualties, about 110,000 civilians died between 2009 and the present. So, you know, we're, we're trying to kind of come up with a balance sheet here, and it's really hard to come up with the pros and how the pros somehow overcome the cons. I guess we just have to remember why we went in in the first place. And that was, um, you know, because uh, a Taliban-led government was harboring and, and uh, encouraging al-Qaeda, which, of course, led the attacks on the 9-11. And it was clear then that um, that, that country was, I guess, a terrorist country in that sense and, and was making a direct threat onto the West and to NATO nations and to the United States. So it, it, it was clear that at the beginning, that's what the war was about. And very quickly did the Taliban fall. And, uh, and then after that, you know, we, we, I guess we were there for time. We were hoping that there'd be enough time to make Afghanistan into something that would prevent future terrorist uh, actions from taking place out of that country. And, uh, and I guess we ran out of time. That's a, that's a very short or long answer, but it's a glib end to my answer. It's hard to tell. Well, so if I'm a, and again, I mean, look, I, I don't even, I, I, I'm troubled asking this question almost because again, it may sound glib and it's not meant to be that, but if you're the parent or spouse or child or grandparent of a soldier who died over there, you probably could have some comfort if you felt like something lasting had been achieved, but how do you feel about it now? If days after the Americans really pull out, the whole thing falls apart and it looks like nothing has been achieved and your sacrifice was for nothing. Well, I, I can't obviously speak for, for those whose sons and daughters and husbands and uh, died or were badly wounded. And I, I know a few people that came back and and were forever changed because of their experience in Afghanistan. Um, the, the part of the problem, I suppose, is that there's a narrative, and the Canadians, I guess, are used to a narrative, just as so many people in the West are used to the narratives of the First and Second World War, that we won a military victory, that our great-grandparents or grandparents won, and uh, they were centered in Europe, and it was to try to combat a, an evil uh, in various forms. And that, that victory was a, uh, one that, that, that kind of uh, legitimized Canada as a nation, that, uh, that, mm-hmm. that raised our status in the world, and, and that we were on the right side, and that we were victorious. So we're kind of caught in that narrative, right? We have to remember, though, that's a selective history. Um, Our record, and and this is, again, I don't think any kind of criticism of anyone who's deployed. I think think what what we should take some comfort in is, is that Canadians did very, very well under very, very difficult circumstances. Um, If anyone had said to us 25 years ago that we would launch a 
a major expedition to Afghanistan, literally on the other side of the world, people would have said we're crazy. So <laughs> we, we did that. And we, and I think we showed ourselves to be highly professional and, uh, and, and quite remarkable in the kind of role that we played. Um, but we have to remember too, you know, the Korean conflict, Canadians were committed to Korea in the early 1950s. Well, the Korean war isn't done yet. You know, yeah, been yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. Right. That's and, true. And, you know, so the poor guys that came back from Korea, mostly guys who are now, you know, really aging veterans must have felt the same way. What was it? Why were we there? And and I guess the same answer comes up in the case of Afghanistan, too. We might even ask the same of our peacekeeping record. Uh, where, you know, we were always great peacekeepers and we were there because we were members of the UN and it's because we we could do things we thought that other countries couldn't do. And, and to a large part, that was true. But not all peacekeeping worked out as well as we would like to have thought. And, and Doctor, you said something, and, I, and I, I, I agree with you, and that is as a historian, it's really hard to be able to judge this in a historic context when we're living it right now. But let's go to the living it right now for a second, because it seemed, not even seemed, it, it appears very obvious that a vacuum has been created when the Americans began pulling out. So should they be blamed for what's happened here because they left and allowed this vacuum to exist? Or do we look at this and say, look, it, they can't stay forever. And it doesn't matter when this was, when they pulled out, this was going to happen. This is a naturally occurring phenomenon. Well, nothing's inevitable. Uh, and war, I don't think, is a naturally occurring phenomenon. I, I, I think that uh, just from what I've been reading and rereading over the last little while, there was a chance, perhaps, to turn Afghanistan. That sounds like a really Western thing to say, to make it into a, a democracy, to make it into a place where the, where the Taliban would not have uh, a firm basis. Um, but it, it does strike me that that argument is, is then said, well, it's because the Americans decided instead of Afghanistan, they would devote themselves to Iraq, which they invaded in 2003. So, you know, um, one could argue that both of those invasions were part of the same coin. And, uh, and you know, I, I, again, I guess I keep coming back to history. You know, Afghanistan is, is hard not to crack. You know, the British tried to take it in the early 19th century and were foiled, were thrown out. The Russians tried to do it in the 1980s. And, uh, and it seemed, you know, in the 1990s, nobody, there was a civil war going on after the uh, withdrawal of the Russians. So, you know, for us to think that we could put it on the road to democracy and some kind mm -hmm. of economic development and some kind of kind of Western measure was probably quite naive. Uh, it was part of, I think, why we as Canadians decided it would be worth the gamble to uh, to try to um, provide security. And they called it 3D at the one at, during one period when it was really good for the Canadians. We were in Kabul and we had defense and we had diplomacy and development. Most of the money, of course, spent on defense. And one might argue in hindsight that that money might well have been best spent in development or in other things. Uh but Afghanistan is just one of those places in the world that's so difficult to try to understand. And I don't think we understood it at all well. And we tried to impose a bunch of measures imposed by the West that, uh, that the Afghan people were not 
uh, we're not going to abide by if that's the right way. I don't think it's their fault. I, I, I do think it's the Americans who, who decided to uh, go into Iraq, which was a disaster of the greatest proportion and uh, which we're still feeling the implications of. So if there was a chance for Afghanistan, it was to go in early and to do something that would have had a lasting impact. But when the resources of the Americans went off to the Iraq, it was maybe fated that it wasn't going to happen, that Afghanistan was still going to um, be threatened by the insurgency, which was largely coming from Pakistan. And if you weren't going to be able to deal with the with the numbers of Taliban fighters coming from Pakistan, this huge border between Afghanistan and Pakistan to the east, it was it was a a, a difficult, you know, it was going to be a long uh, and very narrow victory if that's what you want to call well, it. Well, and where this gets really really difficult now, and from a moral context, is we're hearing reports and accusations now from even the UN of potential war crimes of, of, of kidnappings of young girls as sex slaves and of sort of random killings and all kinds of stuff. Having been there, you know, we've seen this with Mogadishu. We've seen this with Rwanda. We've seen this with other places. Can we just, we, we didn't, we don't want to be there anymore, but can we stand back and not go in if that's what's happening? Or are we basically being forced back in? How, how do we morally deal with this? Well, you know, uh, again, I have to go back to the end of the Cold War when we decided that the, you know, the Russians were no longer our Cold War adversaries and, you know, the Soviet Union fell apart and everyone decided in their enthusiasm in the early 90s that the UN was going to be able to do things that it wasn't otherwise able to do. And, you know, we went into Mogadishu and we went into Rwanda and uh, all on, on humanitarian grounds, which I, I would still argue were legitimate. And they became disasters. And so, you know, the world, whatever we might call it, the, the UN or the or, or NATO or other allied countries, I think, had their hands burned multiple occasions. And then, you know, 2001 comes and we find ourselves both in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, you know, it, it's hard to kind of square a moral outrage with everything that goes on. Um when those examples, Sebrenica in the 1990s, you know, everyone thought that peacekeeping was going to work and be a great model that, that had been evolved in large measure because of the Canadians. But, you know, peacekeeping in the 1990s didn't work very well. And it so, is. Um, yeah, we, we have to let you go. I know you got to run yeah. and, and we're out of time, but <laughs> look, it, it is, going, this is. This is no, this is this is truly one of the most difficult things because again, you've got 159 dead Canadian soldiers and a couple thousand who were injured and you look and you go, I, I hope that it mattered somehow. I hope they had an impact somehow and we don't look and say this was a complete waste. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Hayes from University of Waterloo, very much appreciate the time today. Thanks for this. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, I want to introduce this. Tomorrow evening in Dyersville, Iowa, the New York Yankees are going to play the Chicago White Sox in a Major League Baseball game. Now, some of you are saying there's a Major League Baseball game every night. Why should I possibly care about the Yankees and the White Sox? I'll tell you why. Dyersville, Iowa is where you're going to find the Field of Dreams, the actual place where they film the movie, the Field of Dreams, corn and everything, corn in the outfield. They're playing a Major League Baseball game there tomorrow. Very, very cool idea. 
So I wanted to do something tonight that we rarely, rarely ever do on this show and replay an interview. It's one I did in 2012. Why replay it? Well, we can't talk to him anymore because it's with W.P. Kinsella, who wrote the book, Shoeless Joe, that became Field of Dreams. W.P. Kinsella passed away in 2016. So just before we get into this, for some context, because you'll hear something that otherwise will make no sense. When we first talked to him in 2012, it was the day before a guy named Adam Greenberg was going to get an at-bat for the Florida Marlins. Some of you may recall this story. He was a guy who had come up into the major leagues with the Chicago Cubs. In his very first game, in his very first at-bat, he got beaned. And he got hit in the head so hard with a pitch that it basically ruined his career. And it became almost like the story of Moonlight Graham in Field of Dreams. And eventually, and right before we talked to W.P. Kinsell, the Miami Marlins, the Florida Marlins, in a brilliant piece of marketing, brought this guy back to finish his career. He was playing in the minors. And anyway, they brought him and gave him an at-bat in a meaningless end-of-the-season baseball game, but just so he could have his one major league at-bat. So that's what, when you hear it, when we're talking about it, that's the context. Here it is, 2012 before the game tomorrow night about the Field of Dreams, W.P. Kinsella, the guy who wrote the book. And we are honored W.P. Kinsella joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> nice to be with you. Now, I don't know if you are a prophet or if it's just that in enough time, everything that you could imagine will eventually happen. But it, it is bizarre that the story that you wrote as fiction 30 years ago is basically coming into flesh and blood tomorrow in Major League Baseball. Well, truth is always stranger than fiction, and of course, most of my character, Moonlight Graham, was was actually truth. Well, absolutely. Tell me, now we're going to jump around a little bit, but I don't know that a lot of people know that, that Moonlight, Archibald Moonlight Graham was in fact a Major League Baseball player who, as you describe in your story, never got to have a Major League at bat. How did you stumble upon that name? Because until you wrote it, Nobody, pretty much, had ever heard of it. How did you come across that name? I was given a baseball encyclopedia for Christmas one year, probably about 1979, and I was just leafing through it, and I saw the name Moonlight Graham, and I just thought, oh, what a wonderful name for a character. And uh, then as I was uh, working on my novel, I thought, well, now, is there some way that I can work this guy into it? So we took a drive up to Chisholm, Minnesota, and found out that this guy was so much larger than life. He was so much more than a baseball player who didn't uh, get to come to bat. He was the town doctor for 50 years and was beloved by everyone in the uh, neighborhood, and everyone in Chisholm had a Doc Graham story. So, I mean, it's almost unfathomable, really, that... that had you not had had you not come across that he would not have been part of this this story i mean it it, it almost yeah, seems like the story would have been empty without it yeah luck plays a huge part in uh, everyone's life i think now as you were writing this story i'm ima- i'm guessing that at some point because you're going through the process of of building a narrative and building a story did it ever cross your mind or did you ever sort of tinker with the idea of what would have happened in your mind, in your story, if Moonlight Graham had got his at-bat? 
Uh, no, I didn't really think about that because it wasn't terribly important. I mean, if he uh, if he struck out, it would have been fine. If he had a home run, it would have been fine. It was just an at-bat. And, 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 I mean, you seem like someone, clearly, when you're writing, who is not a big fan of sort of the cliché... Uh, the easy, obvious Hollywood ending. So when you say it would have been fine if he struck out, it, it, complications are okay in stories like this? Uh, yes, I, uh, it was the uh, idea of him getting an at-bat. Now, it's, I think it's like this uh, fellow tonight. It doesn't matter if, he, if they throw three strikes by him or if he hits a ball over the fence. He, he's got his at-bat. It doesn't really matter. Well, I was, I was going to ask you that because if, if he does get up there, and, and one of the interesting, interesting things about this story is that the pitcher he is more than likely going to be facing is the first knuckleballer to win 20 games in a season in 30 years since the year you wrote your story when Phil Necro did it. Uh, not an easy pitcher to hit against. So if he goes up there and flails away and swings and misses on three consecutive pitches, you don't think that that, that the story maybe had, was more satisfying without the conclusion? Uh, I think the fans would probably like it better if he got a hit, but... Uh... I don't think it really matters very much. It's the idea that they've uh, uh, made it possible for him to have a major league at bat. That's the story. You, you, you obviously have written enormously about baseball and written very passionately about it. Do you, do you still follow the game much? I uh, not as much as I used to. I, I still watch the Blue Jays on uh, on TV. I watch most of their <laughs> terrible season. Mm. They've just. Uh, been decimated by injuries, so it uh, hasn't been a very exciting year, and uh, I don't know what the playoffs are going to bring. Just to go back for a second to the book, because I think it, it, the story, I think it's it's fascinating, and a lot of people have never heard a lot of the background of this. Did you, um, do you remember where you were when the nugget, when the, like the, the essence of this story, the, the root idea for Shoeless Joe hit you? Or what's what inspired well, I, it? I wrote the, uh, the I short wrote story, the opening chapter first, and it was published as a short story. Right. And, and do you but remember I think, where? I think the essence of that of the of the whole novel, which I didn't realize at all, was at the end of that story. Um, my wife was typing the final draft for me, and I stopped her and I said. Uh, how far along are you on on the typing? Because I've got a little scene I'd like to add. And I think if she'd been right at the end, I probably wouldn't have done it. But the scene was uh, him meeting the father. Right. And I, I, it didn't even occur to me uh, uh, as I was writing the original story. So again, luck plays a huge part in what you write. And and was that something that came from from your background, or was that a, a just something that popped into your head? It was just something that popped into my head. And and at that moment, and what's when you talk about luck, I mean, you know this. I'm sure that there must have been thousands of people over the years who have come up to you and talked about reading or on the screen, seeing that scene. Well, what kind of response... And, and I think that one, tell me if I'm wrong, but I would guess that scene has inspired more response from that movie almost than anything else. What is the, what is the response people give you? What do they say about it when they see that? Well, I've, uh, I've had 
people write to me and phone me and uh, talk to me at uh, when I make appearances and and that and uh, it's always about that some fellow will say well you know I was living in New Mexico and I drove all the way to Connecticut to take my dad to Fenway Park for a game and uh, that sort of thing uh, so it had a huge effect on uh, on people. And and what you're saying right now is that was never the intent. It was almost an afterthought. It was an afterthought. Which is which is un. I mean, do you look back at that now and say, How what? Could I have missed it? Well, or what would what would it have been like had you not put that in? Had it not occurred to you? I mean, it still would have been a fantastic story. But that is, as you uh, say, sort of the crystallizing the image. Yeah, that was the icing on the cake. I uh, I. Yeah, you know, there's no way of knowing what it would have been like if I hadn't added that. Do you do you believe that Hollywood would have taken as much interest in it had that not been there? Because again, that is the moment that 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 a director or a producer is going to love. I mean, they can build the movie around that and build to that. Yeah, you never really know. Yeah. Have you now? You you say that was totally a fiction of a ima- or a piece of imagination that just popped into your head but many of the characters and many of the locations in Chula's Joe that became Field of Dreams we're talking to W.P. Kinsella the author they were real they were places that you had had some experience with you had lived in or names you knew or players you had read about or followed I uh, I have always tried to mix up uh, fact and fiction so People can't really tell which is which, and after a few years, I can't remember which is which. <laughs> well, when you're sitting down to write this, because they are places that are familiar and sights and smells and noises that are in your head, is it easy? D- do these things flow easily for you? When you sat down, did this story flow easily, or was this a grind to put this together? Uh, no, it flowed very easily. Uh, I uh, I wrote the story, and it was read by an editor at Houghton Mifflin Publishers in Boston, and he wrote to me and said it should be turned into a novel, or if it was a novel already, he wanted to see it. So I immediately started thinking novel, and I just sat down and I just continued the story right on, and it was just like a baby. It took nine months to finish. Is that right? And, and is it true you were originally going to call it Dreamfield? Uh, no, that okay. uh, was um, the uh, the movie people made a choice between Dreamfield and Field of okay. Dreams. Um, I wrote it. Uh, let's see, what did I what did I call it? I I originally called it the kidnapping of J D. Salinger. Okay, I thought that would have public appeal. Uh, Shoeless Joe was uh, chosen by my publisher, and then Field of Dreams was chosen by the movie people. Do you, uh, do you ever watch the movie? Have you? I'm sure you have watched the movie. Is it um, something? Uh, yeah, it comes on frequently on TV, so I'll watch parts of it. You know. And and uh, what does a person who has written something that has become such a beloved movie, and it really has. Uh, when you see that and you see that it's your work, do you, do you still feel anything? I mean, I'm sure that you did at the very beginning, the first time you saw it, either for better or for worse, but does it still inspire feeling in you? Uh, yeah, I, I still think they, uh, when I watch it, I think they really did a wonderful job of it. 
I mean, in nine out of ten cases, when Hollywood adapts a book to the screen, they screw it up totally. <laughs> and uh, I think John Grisham would agree with you in some cases. Oh, yeah. So the, uh, the only other writer I know who liked the movie made from their book was Thomas Keneally with uh, Schindler's List. Okay. But uh, mo- most times they ruin it completely, and I've had a couple of other uh, stories adapted that weren't up to very much at all. But... Uh, The young man, Phil Robinson, who wrote the uh, screenplay and then directed the movie, was just so in love with the story that uh, he just couldn't help but do something good with it. And did you participate? Did you have any say, or did you just disappear and let them do their thing? Uh, I had no say in it, whatever. Uh, Phil Robinson used to call me while he was writing it, and he'd say, look, I want you to understand that there's no way we can get a 300-plus page book into an hour and 40-minute movie. So uh, we have to cut characters, we have to telescope time, we have to change characters around to make them fit into this uh, movie format, because there is a great difference between a movie and a book. So I understood what he was, uh, what he was doing. Now, I, I don't even know if I'm allowed to ask you this next question, because uh, you, 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 rarely, you generally don't ask the artist to explain their art. It is out there for people to interpret. I, I get that. But I, I'm going to anyway on this one occasion, because I have you here. There are all kinds of debates when people watch this about who the voice in Field of Dreams, in Shoeless Joe, was really intended to be speaking to, whether it was Ray, the the main character, whether it was Terrence Mann, whether it was Shoeless Joe, whether it was Moonlight Graham, whether it was Ray's dad. When you were writing it, was there one particular character that you had in mind that the voice was speaking to? Well, Ray was the one who heard the voice. Right, uh, but whose pain was it easing? Because that could be anybody's, or or you know who 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 was the one who it there were so many characters that the the voices words could have spoken about. Was there one in mind, or was it all of them? No, it was just some uh, in indefinite voice out in the ether. Right. Well, getting back to tomorrow, because this is really you know the the. the the timeliness of this, which again, I think is remarkable that 30 years after you imagined this, that it's going to happen tomorrow, you know, unless something bizarre happens, Adam Greenberg is going to get his one at bat. He's going to become Moonlight Graham plus one. Right. Um, What is it about baseball? And you've written again, as I say, you've written passionately and long, uh, you know, much about baseball. What is it about baseball, this example being an obvious one, that is so emotional with people and that lends itself to such great stories? Well, I think basically it's the open-endedness of the game. I mean, the other sports are twice enclosed, uh, first by time limits and then by rigid playing boundaries. Now, on a true baseball field, the foul lines diverge forever and there's no distance that you theoretically couldn't hit the ball or an outfielder couldn't run to retrieve it. And that makes for magic, and that uh, that's what I've always uh, done, is combine magic with uh, baseball. Because, I mean, truly, I, baseball, led by yourself, baseball and boxing probably have been the two sports that have had the most um, beautiful stuff written about them. And, 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 you know, they're completely opposite ends of the spectrum, but the... Um, yeah, it's it's a remarkable thing. Do you are you a romantic about baseball? Um, 
not as much as my characters are. Okay. I mean, I I enjoy the game. I always have. I followed it uh, all my life. My dad had played a little minor league ball uh, long before I was born, and uh, he used to come home with a copy of what was then the St. Louis Sporting News uh, when he ca- when he got out to civilization, and uh, that's why I knew about baseball while I was growing up. And, but you have you have lived through, especially in the last, let's say, fifteen or twenty years, so many great moments, but also so many problems baseball has had with steroids and other things. Are are you someone who's able to overlook all those things, or those blemishes add to, in a way, in a weird way, add something to the game, add some texture or some some flaws that make the game interesting? Well, uh, the the game will survive. Uh, these things are. Uh, like dogs barking at a caravan. Uh, the uh, dogs bark, but the caravan rumbles on. Uh, baseball will always be there. And again, I just have a few seconds here, but again, when you said it a moment ago that the fans, given a choice, the fans wanted Adam Greenberg to get an at-bat, and probably the fans would like him to get a hit. If you were writing the end of this story, what would be the more interesting ending to this story? Him getting a hit or him getting a home run and running right into the tunnel and disappearing or him getting out and and not getting that hit and leaving it as a as an unfinished symphony almost uh, I would leave it at the point where he's standing in the batter's box waiting for the first pitch leave it to the imagination right and, and it almost because again in a way it some of the what some of the magic almost disappears when there is a real outcome to this, that we know what the outcome is. Yes, yes, that's, uh, it's, anticipation is always nine-tenths of the actual event. Well, I, I must let you go, I, I, but I just want to ask, is there, is there a great, there are very few people who have written or composed or built something that does inspire such emotion in so many people, is there a real sense of satisfaction in knowing that you did that, that, that however it happened, and I mean, you talk about luck a bit, but it's not all luck, that you are the author of something that was incredibly special and incredibly meaningful to a lot of people? Oh, yes. I think uh, that's uh, what you strive for as an author, is for recognition and have your uh, work uh, have an emotional effect on people. And uh, I've succeeded uh, in that uh, a number of times so it, yes it's very satisfying that was wp kinsella back in 2012 as i say he uh, unfortunately passed away in 2016 but his vision his dream his story in some sense is going to come to life tomorrow when major league baseball plays a real game a regular season game at the field of dreams fascinating guy and terrific writer and you know what if you've only seen the movie and that's great read the book because the book has a lot more in it. It's a, it's a fantastic book. It really is. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening. And do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.